Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode called The Darkest Day, we tell the story of the 1969 Yellow River Drag Strip disaster. It's a story that looks at the history of drag racing, the history of unique racetrack, the history of drag strip safety, and how it all came together on one fateful day in 1969. This is the story, the complete story, of the Yellow River Drag Strip disaster. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO. That's J-E-R-K-O for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. They care about the jerky you eat. Use JERKO for 10% off. Total Venue Concepts is the most comprehensive racing facility service, equipment, and consulting firm in the nation. Founded and led by industry veteran and expert Kurt Johnson, the company is uniquely positioned to provide surface maintenance and preparation, equipment rentals, fabrication and sales, event and facility management consulting, racing service renovations and construction oversight, graphics and technical writing expertise, as well as trade show and event support. With a proven record of solving problems and improving track operations, racing surface preparation and event execution, TVC should be your first call for virtually any facility need. Contact Total Venue Concepts by visiting TotalVenueConcepts.com or calling 419-677-3023. That's TotalVenueConcepts.com or 419-677-3023. On March 3, 1969, drag racing fans woke up to a strange sight. Their sport. Pluggy and gritty drag racing had made the front page of the New York Times the largest newspaper in the country. It was not a reason to celebrate. In fact, it was reason to recoil in horror. The story reads, Headline, Racing Car Kills 11 at Drag Track. Subheadline, Spins Off Georgia Strip at 180 miles an hour, 50 injured. By United Press International. Covington, Georgia, March 2nd. A bullet-shaped drag racer spun off the track at an outlaw drag strip today and smashed into some of the 5,000 fans at more than 150 miles an hour. Eight persons were killed and about 50 others injured. The low-slung, orange, glass-fiber racer was still accelerating when its driver, Houston Platt of Atlanta, a longtime drag racer, apparently lost control of the car as it crossed the finish line of the quarter-mile blacktop track. It swerved up a small earthen bank, barely missing a cluster of men standing near the finish line and a parachute rigged to slow the car opened slightly. The chute knocked down one man and barely slowed the powerful car. It cut into hundreds of men, women, and children, clustered at the finish line, split in half, and then cut down spectators like a scythe. Mr. Platt was able to walk away from the wreckage, apparently unhurt. Weather had helped attract a large crowd at this small Georgia town about 30 miles southeast of Atlanta. Sheriff Henry Odom of Newton County, who listed 11 dead and estimated the injured at 50 persons, said that many of the racing fans had immediately begun bearing the injured to their cars. Quote, When I got to the track, I saw a pickup truck leaving with five or six injured in the back, the sheriff said. Ambulances from small towns in the area and from Atlanta sped to the track, which is situated outside the town. Covington's Main Street was blocked to all traffic except ambulances by the time the first out-of-town ambulances arrived, he said. By coincidence, Rick Lynch of Memphis, director of professional racing for the American Hot Rod Association, was at Yellow River Drag Strip when the accident occurred. Quote, The track at Yellow River is an unsanctioned drag strip, he said. It's an outlaw strip, what we call tracks unsanctioned by the American Hot Rod Association and the National Hot Rod Association. End quote. He said that the track had not been sanctioned by the sport's two major organizations, quote, because it's unsafe, end quote. To receive a sanction, there must be protection between the cars and the spectators, he said. This track does not have it and therefore cannot qualify under any association I know about. The minimum requirement is a guardrail at least three feet tall between spectators and cars racing. Subtitle, driver called seasoned. The track is owned by S.R. Campbell Jr. of Covington. He was not immediately available for comment. Mr. Lynch, who said that he had witnessed the accident, called the driver a seasoned drag race driver. Quote, he has competed in speeds in excess of 190 miles an hour at almost every major racetrack in the United States, end quote. 
He said that organizations such as his have been unable to stop the spread of outlaw tracks. Quote, there's nothing we can do, he added. Quote, it's up to the Georgia legislature, end quote. Drag racing has widespread appeal in the South than much of the rest of the nation. Such races usually pit two cars at a time over a quarter-mile dirt or paved surface. Sometimes the cars race each other, and sometimes they race the clock for fastest times to cover the quarter-mile. No drag strip safety legislation has been offered in Georgia in recent years. Several legislators said today that they would offer such legislation. Subtitle, Nine Victims Identified. Sheriff Odom identified nine of the 11 dead as Jim Breedlove of Lawrenceville, Frank Wessinger of Bowdoin, Ronald Jordan of Kennesaw, Jeff Watkins of Decatur, Harold Ruffner of East Atlanta, Edward Loftus of Marion, N.C. Kenneth Atkins of Graham, Alabama, Dolly Harrison of Atlanta, and James Richard Bonner, a four-year-old of Greensboro. Most of the victims came from small towns in the Covington area. Two of them, a teenage boy and girl, were not identified immediately. Parents and other relatives poured into the small town when news of the accident spread. Emergency rooms and hospitals throughout the area were reportedly filled with the injured, many of whom required only minor treatment. Most of the injured were treated and released. Ten persons were admitted to four hospitals. At least five of them were in critical condition. Another spectator at the track, Bernard Nagy, an artist and freelance photographer for European magazines, said that the orange dragster, known in racing circles as a funny car because of its odd elongated shape, had been approaching 180 to 200 miles an hour when it veered off the track. Quote, I was just shooting, he said. I moved the camera just as the car went by. Suddenly, the car swerved off to the right side and hit the earthen barrier. It missed five or six men standing there, and then its parachute came partly open. Quote, I heard a lot of screaming. I saw one father holding a small child and yelling, get me a doctor. People were just crazy. I saw 10 or 12 bodies. End quote. Eleven people have been killed, dozens hospitalized, and thousands traumatized by the events at a small, outlaw, backwater drag strip in Georgia almost no one in the country knew existed the day before. By the time it was all said and done, 12 people would be dead. Untold others had lifelong injuries. A drag racer's life was in shambles. A track was closed. Millions of dollars in lawsuits were filed. And the sport of drag racing would change in some ways forever. This is a story of evolution. A story of decisions, a story of a sport on the rise, a promoter on the take, and how the greatest event ever staged at a little racetrack in Georgia would be the undoing of that facility and so many others. This is the story of the Yellow River drag strip disaster of March 2nd, 1969. I have to come out and say this right off the top. This is the story of the worst day in drag racing history. There have been many historically bad days in auto racing over the course of time, from the 1955 Le Mans disaster, the 1957 tragedy at the Mille Miglia, the 1961 Monza calamity, and yes, this abject and horrible situation at the Yellow River drag strip in Georgia. So many times, people tell this story with only the depth of the headline, which for many may be enough, but the real depth and breadth of Yellow River doesn't come from just the headline. The real depth and breadth comes from understanding the history of the track, how it came to be known, and then the after-effect of this nightmare that could have, and sometimes did, have a disastrous effect on drag racing and some of its facilities. So this story doesn't begin on March 2, 1969. It begins a decade before that, when advertisements began showing up in Atlanta newspapers for a place called Yellow River Drag Strip. The track was located four miles west of Covington, Georgia, on Route 278, and it was, like virtually every place drag racing took place in the 50s, nothing much more than a piece of asphalt that ran to nowhere with some dusty pits. And even that description may be generous. 38 feet wide and barely 2,800 feet long, no matter how you measure it, this was a place that 1950s drag racers embraced and saw really as the industry standard. By 1960, the sport of drag racing had taken incredible root in the South, and Atlanta was no exception. Check out this story from the Atlanta Constitution, published in July of 1960. It tells us all we need to know, and in the story, Yellow River is referenced as the best drag strip in the Atlanta area. The track, which had been open twice a month in the late 50s, had now warranted opening weekly because of demand from the local populace and the blossoming business of hiring in match-racing talent. In fact, early on in his career, Don Garlitz was hired to run at this place in 1960, and it really was one of the rare instances over this track's history that a fuel dragster would end up being the promotional item to get fans in the gate. 
Nestled deep in the heart of southern door slammer and stock car country, Yellow River would make its bones on full-bodied cars through the 1960s. Over the course of a lot of exhaustive research on Yellow River Drag Strip, it was virtually impossible to find an ad promoting fuel dragsters as the main attraction outside of the Garlitz visit in 1960. Remember, this place was less than 40 feet wide and less than 3,000 feet in total length, so honestly... Even by the time Garlitz ran there in 1960 in a car that, well, could go about 185 miles an hour, Yellow River was already obsolete. One of the things that will be important to note through this whole story is that the track is unsanctioned. It wasn't sanctioned when it opened, and it wasn't sanctioned on that fateful day that it closed. This will become a vital part of the story as we move on. A man named Suge Campbell was the operator of Yellow River Drag Strip, and he knew a couple of things. He knew how to book match racers in, he knew how to fill his racetrack, and he knew that the cars kept getting faster while his rustic facility stayed exactly the same. But by keeping costs to a minimum, Campbell kept the entry fee cheap, and that meant a lot of people through the gates consistently. With a $1 ticket and a 50-cent add-on for a pit pass, Campbell would be able to take in the modern equivalent of thirty dollars to $40,000 on a good single match race day with operating expenses that were minimal at best. By 1964, the track was very well known in the region. It was a premier spot for people to stop at while making national tours. Now, they may not have run as hard or as fast at Yellow River as other places, but they put on a good show. They put on that show in front of fans who were so close they could nearly touch the cars going down the racetrack. And sure, the occasional beer can was thrown at a car, but these were just riled up fans, and there's bad eggs in every bunch, right? In this middle 60s time period, Phil Bonner was one of the true racing southern stars of the sport. He was from Georgia, and Bonner had factory backing from Ford, and many, many booked-in dates at Yellow River. In fact, one of the great promotions that Campbell came up with was a race night called Bonner vs. All Superstock. Even better than that, Bonner had to win each race by at least two car lengths to be declared the actual winner, and not shockingly, he took care of business. Campbell really showed his promotional chops, often leveraging the largest names in NASCAR to his track with interesting events, and perhaps the most interesting of all was having Wendell Scott, NASCAR's first black top-level racer, match race Arnie Beswick in September of 1964. Atlanta Constitution, Dateline, September 11, 1964. Headline, Scott Drags Big Arnie at River. Now remember, I'm using the words of the newspaper of the time of 1964. These are not my own. NASCAR's only Negro chauffeur, Wendell Scott, and Eastern Top Eliminator Arnie Beswick of Morrison, Illinois, will pit Experimental Ford versus Experimental Pontiac Saturday night in a special match race at Yellow River Drag Strip. Scott, 11th in NASCAR Grand National Point standings, will fly into Atlanta Saturday morning for personal appearances and then mount his 1964 Ford Experimental Machine for the contest against Beswick. It will be the first appearance of a Negro drag racing star in the Atlanta area. Beswick's GTO, capable of generating 800 horsepower, has been given one car-length head start by Wendell Scott. Sunday, Beswick will travel to the Southeastern Dragway for a match race to meet all comers. The popular Beswick has been a continual attraction at the former Dallas drag strip. This seems a pretty amazing thing at nearly the height of the 1960s civil rights tensions in the country. Phil Bonner was to provide the car for Scott and Beswick was to show up with his own Pontiac. Campbell always managed to make a big scene at his track whenever the NASCAR names were in town to race at Atlanta International Raceway. In fact, in 1966, he ran a promotion that paid anybody who could beat Richard Petty on the drag strip $1,000. This from the March 23, 1966 Atlanta Constitution. Headline, Yellow River Sets Big Show. Covington, Georgia. Officials of Yellow River Drag Strip announced the biggest one-day show in its history here Tuesday afternoon. The program featuring NASCAR's ever-popular Richard Petty is scheduled for May 1st. A total prize of $1,000 awaits any person who can beat Petty in the best two out of three matches, according to strip owner S.R. Campbell. Petty will be driving his name to Barracuda. We now move to the Atlanta Journal of April 28, 1966. Headline, Beat Petty, Win a Grand. Dragsters who've dreamed of racing Richard Petty can get such an opportunity Sunday at Yellow River Drag Strip. And $1,000 goes to any man that can beat the NASCAR champion down the quarter-mile strip. All entries will be accepted at $1 per head. Shug Campbell, Yellow River owner, says he's put $1,000 in the hands of Walker Harris of Covington and guarantees it to any man that can beat Petty. That moment was billed as the largest single event in the history of the track at that point. In 1966, Richard Petty was one of the greatest stars of American racing, and the place was packed to the gills when he was in the house. 
Of course, this runs 100% counter to the wrongly modern popular belief that Petty stopped drag racing in February of 1965 after he had a crash on the drag strip that took the life of a boy. He not only drag raced through 1965, he was at it for years after with appearances as well. In the late fall of 1965, Yellow River Drag Strip was repaved and a Christmas tree was installed. These were large improvements, but the track still had little in the way for amenities, there were still no walls, and when the place was full, a near-riotous feeling permeated the entire racetrack. 1966 would be a banner year for the facility. Outside of the petty promotion, Dick Landy and a regular cast of match-racing mavens came through the track with regularity. Atlanta Journal, September 20th, 1966, headline, Landy at Yellow River. Dick Landy, considered the number one dragster on the West Coast, makes his Deep South debut October 2nd at Yellow River Drag Strip in a double-match feature race. Also scheduled to match times against each other are Dino Don Nicholson and Arnie Beswick. Landy goes against Phil Bonner. Quote, I'm looking forward to my Atlanta run, Landy said Monday, and especially running against Bonner's long-nosed Mustang. While that race will certainly demand much attention, it's the Nicholson-Beswick duel that is expected to burn up the track. Nicholson and Beswick have long been Yellow River favorites, and Beswick owns three straight victories over Nicholson. Dino Don recently set the world record for so-called funny cars at Motor City Dragway in Detroit, Michigan. Competing against John Dallifer, he pushed his Comet Eliminator to an 8.16 elapsed time at 174.41 miles per hour. Bonner's appearance in the long-nosed car will be the first in the south. Their car is getting faster, the track seemingly getting more narrow as the speeds increased, the distance to the end seeming to shorten up as well. In fact, this issue became so obvious that the distance of the finish line was reduced at Yellow River Drag Strip from the quarter mile to 1,000 feet in 1966. Dino Don Nicholson was a regular at the racetrack, and in 1966 he had set the funny car record at 816 at 174 at Detroit Dragway in early September. Just a couple weeks later, he came to Yellow River, running a 735 at 1,000 feet, meaning he had his foot plowed to the floor, and he had, like so many others that raced at this track, guts for days. Atlanta Journal, October 3, 1966. Nicholson, Landy, win Yellow River. Dino Don Nicholson of Atlanta, the nation's most famous stock dragster, Sunday reached a new milestone, a double victory over Arnie the Farmer Beswick in match race action at the Yellow River Drag Strip. In companion match races, Atlanta's Phil Bonner, driving a brand new Mustang, first defeated Dick Landy's Dodge, but then lost two straight in the match. A crowd of more than 5,000 watched the hot duels, some of the most sensational ever staged on Georgia or Deep South dragways. Coming to the line for what proved to be the final run, both Nicholson's Comet and Beswick's fuel-injected Pontiac screamed off together. Wheels raised high. Nicholson nosed ahead, but just before Dino Don went through the trap, here came Beswick roaring alongside. Nicholson the winner by a bumper sticker margin. Nicholson's time, respective, 7.35 and 7.40 seconds for the 3 16 mile. In 1967, the track was roaring. Wheel standers, multiple shows with the most famous factory-backed superstock, FX, and altered wheelbase cars in the country, along with an eight-part series in the Atlanta Journal newspaper about drag racing. This was a pretty amazing, rolling piece of journalism that landed on the front page every day for more than a week, and it looked at the sport from all sides, from its effect on youth, to the police, to the racetracks, and the fact that it had really impacted the general population in Atlanta because there were so many fans. While this series was not centered around Yellow River Drag Strip, there were plenty of references to that racetrack in it, and many of the famous racers that came through the racetrack talked with reporters to be part of the series. This was, in effect, a promoter's dream. Unsolicited news coverage that was helping to hype up the sport and let people know that famous racers kept coming through your racetrack is something that you really just can't buy if you're Suge Campbell. In 1968, well, it was more of the same. The big stock and super stock shows, the big match races, and the weekly grudge racing under the lights. The track was still unsanctioned. The small, rickety grandstand was scarcely used during large events because fans would pile up on top of the barely-there rickety fencing that lined both sides of the racetrack. Campbell had applied for NHRA sanction in this time period and had been rejected by the company as NHRA didn't feel the place lived up to the basic safety standards they had for racetracks. This was an outlaw track, and in so many ways it could have been the most famous outlaw racetrack in the country circa 1968. It needs to be mentioned that in the late 1960s, there were hundreds of sanctioned tracks and maybe as many small rustic strips like Yellow River that had been part of the 50s birth of drag racing and it never really changed. There was a multitude of reasons for this, but the most major one was because strip operators were not incentivized to reinvest into their own business. People kept showing up and they knew what they were getting into when they came through the gate. After that, all bets are off. 
1969 was shaping up to be the largest year in the life of the humble little track outside of Covington, Georgia. Suge Campbell and crew were coming out of the gate swinging with the biggest show in their history, which would happen in early March. The flip-top funny cars of guys like Jungle Jim, Malcolm Durham, Don Gay, Arnie Beswick, Houston Platt, and a host of others. Drivers like Frank Oglesby, who was piloting Dino Don's Cougar. Atlanta Constitution, February 4, 1969. Title, Yellow River Post-Entries for 5th Annual Spring Show. The biggest race in the history of Yellow River Drag Strip will take place on March 1st and 2nd. That's right, a two-day meet featuring the finest field of cars ever assembled on Yellow River asphalt. Already entered in the eight-car field of funny cars are such notables as Dino Don Nicholson and his famed Eliminator Comet, Arnie Beswick of Morrison, Illinois and his popular GTO, Malcolm Durham of Washington, D.C. and his Camaro. Malcolm is also bringing his newest machine, a Chevelle Superstocker. The Super Cuda out of Memphis, who we all remember for his wild match racing with Nicholson last year, Don Gay of Dickinson, Texas, and the nation's first Pontiac Grand Prix funny car, a lightweight fiberglass two-frame supercharged creation that is already running quicker and faster than Gay's famed GTO, and Jungle Jim Lieberman of Long Beach, California, and what many think is the quickest Chevrolet in the nation. Phil Bonner and Houston Platt are late entries with new cars, but if funny cars aren't your bag, just check this. A $6,000 purse for Superstock and Street Eliminator with $3,000 to Superstock and $3,000 to Street Eliminator over 100 of these machines are expected. Only the quickest 32 cars in each bracket will get to run on Sunday's eliminations, however, so all cars must qualify on Saturday. Also, all funny cars must make qualifying runs on Saturday to determine the first-round pairings for Sunday's eliminations. So mark your calendars now, Saturday, March 1st, and Sunday, March 2nd, for the wildest show in drag racing. Where else but at Yellow River? Starting in late February, Yellow River ran concurrent campaigns in the largest Atlanta newspapers, The Constitution, and The Journal. Each day, the track had an ad that would tease the race and it would actually show one of the competitors that was booked in to attend. It's at this moment that we have to start analyzing the forces at work when it comes to the Yellow River drag strip tragedy. Why was the track so full that day? Yes, of course, the big names bring in the big crowds, but the weather had been relentlessly bad in the area until just a couple days before the race. The clouds broke, the sun came out, and so didn't every drag racing fan seemingly within 100 miles. Reports are between four and 5,000 people are on the property for this matchup of the nation's most famous funny car drivers. Now, is that accurate? Who knows? But what is accurate is that the place was so full and the fans so rowdy, track officials were regularly riding up and down the drag strip to move people back, basically getting them off the physical surface where the cars were. The announcer was begging all day, and the incessant patrols up and down the sides of the drag strip to keep the fans back would happen all day long between pairs of cars. Fans would randomly hop the fence and run across the track. People would throw beer cans at the cars on the way by. It was lawlessness, the same kind that Yellow River had lived on and thrived on and profited on since 1959. It should be mentioned that there was another piece of drag racing news in the Atlanta papers that same week of this event. Wally Parks had announced on February 25th that the NHRA Spring Nationals would not be moving to Atlanta International Raceway and the proposed drag strip there because the track had not been built yet. The Atlanta Journal, February 25, 1969. Headline, NHRA cancels Atlanta International Raceway drags. The Spring Nationals, one of four premier events annually sanctioned and staged by the National Hot Rod Association, will not be held at Atlanta International Raceway. NHRA President Wally Park said it would be impossible for them, Atlanta International Raceway, to finish the vast construction program on the drag strip in such short time but we hope to develop a major annual event in Atlanta to be run later in the season. The dates for the Spring Nationals are June 13th through the 15th. Ultimately, the race would go to Dallas. It's a unique side note in NHRA history that Atlanta was even considered to have this race, and secondly, it speaks to just how hot a racing population the city had that the NHRA was willing to place one of its very few national events at the time in Atlanta. Now we go back to Yellow River. In front of a heavy, rowdy crowd, the stars of the show, the funny cars, are making their runs. Two by two, they would burn out, stage, and rip down the short racetrack. It should be noted that the strip itself was on the lowest part of the property at Yellow River, so all that rain and weather, it had made an absolute mess of the racetrack. According to Arnie Beswick, this place didn't even have so much as a mechanized broom or a heavy-duty blower to clear the track with. The race cars themselves were doing that work as they went roaring down the drag strip. As each pair went down, Houston Platt got closer and closer to the end of the staging lanes. He had pulled in that morning with a brand new car. It was to be the next in his line of wildly successful Dixie Twisters and a franchise that he had been building on for nearly a decade. 
This was by far the finest, safest, and fastest funny car he had ever owned. The best of everything was paid for from last year's earnings as a match racing superstar, and the literal vehicle to carry him to more earnings was what was going to carry him down the racetrack at Yellow River that day. Platt had raced at Yellow River for years. He had raced against this group of cars from coast to coast. They all knew each other. He was one of the true traveling veterans of the early years of the funny car's existence. Respectful and respected, Houston Platt was a racer's racer. It's because of all this that one must wonder the thoughts that went through Platt's head as he left the starting line, got loose, and corrected his car, as race car drivers do. But then the car made another big move, and he made another big correction. And at this point, he had to have believed he was going to hit the wall. But then Houston Platt realized there was no wall to hit. To tell the story of Houston Platt is a bit difficult in some respects. He was not flashy or flamboyant. He was a big Southern boy and the older brother of a racer who was more flashy and flamboyant in drag racing, Hubert Platt. Hubert had never met a camera he didn't like, was always fast with a story, and loved to tell the world the tale of the AFX Falcon he had built in his basement garage and then had to disassemble and carry outside piece by piece to reassemble. Houston, on the other hand, he let his cars do the talking, oftentimes taking his brother to the cleaners on the drag strip over the course of their respective careers, which did run in great parallel through the 1960s. Houston Platt began recreationally drag racing in 1959, and then by the early 60s, he had a Biscayne, which he had raced and won with. He then saved up and scraped up money to buy a used 1963 Z11 Chevy, racing through 1964 with it. He had a late-season crash and then bought a second replacement Z11 from none other than the Sox and Martin team. Keeping the Z11 engine, he bought a 1964 Chevelle, dumped the engine from the Z11 into it, and was back at it again. And while that Chevelle was cool, it would be the next Dixie Twister that would really place Houston Platt on the map. Bill Thomas, the famed race car builder and special projects guy in the West Coast, had built a small number of special Chevy 2s for the Chevrolet company. They came off the line as convertibles, but Thomas then fit them with a custom fastback roof, and they were going to be used in road racing. Before they even got the chance to hit the racetrack, the SCCA rejected them out of hand, Chevy bailed on the project, and basically told Bill Thomas, well, good luck sell what you have to make your money back, and that's exactly what he did. Houston Platt got one of these cars and turned the thing into a beastly straight-axle match basher that would hang with the best in the world. Unlike some of his contemporaries, instead of a blower, Platt went with fuel injection and really got it tuned up right. The car was able to hang with the best in the country, but ultimately was too heavy. The result of this was a 1966 Nova. Platt stripped that car to its bare bones, added the injected nitro-burning engine, and eventually was declared the quickest naturally aspirated car in the world by drag news. The 66 could reel off eight-second runs with consistency with no supercharger. And just as quickly as he gained mastery of his 66, the flip-top Mercury Comets arrived, and the game of funny car racing had once and forever changed. Understanding that a car like his Nova would not be competitive for that much longer, Platt was able to continue on match racing and saving money, by mid-1967, enough of it was saved to pay the Logie brothers for a complete 1968 Camaro funny car. Platt received this car late in the year, and basically on the day he got it, took the thing to Motor City Dragway outside of Detroit, and on the very first pass, this happened. The vertical wheel stand ended horribly with the car smashing down on the guardrail and being effectively destroyed. He had the Logie brothers place wheelie bars in the next one, which he picked up a few months later. The 1968 Dixie Twister was fast, it was smooth, and it was safe. He had a truck painted to match, and Houston Platt kind of had it made. One of the guys refusing to switch to a Chrysler Hemi, he had booking potentials, an actual Chevy-powered car that the fans loved. Platt had made the move from strictly injected to a blown combination late in 1968, and with that supercharger, he was able to lay down runs with the best of them. Even bigger news for Platt is that the car was picked up by the famed gold agency of Ben Christ. This meant that Houston Platt would be booked solid as a feature car from coast to coast all season long in the match racing world, and he was racing as much as he could possibly handle, sometimes making up to 30 laps a week. Platt had made enough money that he called the Logie Brothers for another brand new car now in 1968. He wanted everything from soup to nuts, the bells and whistles, everything that they could offer. The car was so new when he got to Yellow River in 1969, it hadn't even been lettered yet and the paint was barely dry. They said it was the best of the best. And as he shot down the racetrack on his first run and things got sideways, and then things got really bad, he had to have been thinking, oh, not again, right before he realized what was truly about to happen. This is what happened, and this is how it looked after Houston Platt left the starting line at Yellow River. 
Total Venue Concepts is the most comprehensive racing facility service, equipment, and consulting firm in the nation. Founded and led by industry veteran and expert Kurt Johnson, the company is uniquely positioned to provide surface maintenance and preparation, equipment rentals, fabrication and sales, event and facility management consulting, racing service renovations and construction oversight, graphics and technical writing expertise, as well as trade show and event support. With a proven record of solving problems and improving track operations, racing surface preparation and event execution, TVC should be your first call for virtually any facility need. Contact Total Venue Concepts by visiting TotalVenueConcepts.com or calling 419-677-3023. That's TotalVenueConcepts.com or 419-677-3023. This episode of the Dorkamotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO. That's J-E-R-K-O for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. They care about the jerky you eat. Use JERKO for 10% off. This incredible 8mm footage was shot by a fan, but then shown nationally on an NBC show called First Tuesday. Now, this was a news magazine that was designed to be a competitor of 60 Minutes. Yes, the footage is herky-jerky, strange, but it shows the car heading off the racetrack, up the banking, and straight into the heart of the crowd. It shows glimpses of Platt and the bare chassis trying to get out of the car, and it captures just a moment of a scene that looked like a war zone. Atlanta Constitution, March 3rd, 1969, page 7. Headline, Track Was Bloody, DeKalb Youth Says. Written by Bob Hurt. Quote, The blood. That's what I remember. It seems like the whole track was covered in blood. End quote. That was how Mike Wade, a 16-year-old DeKalb County high school student, described the aftermath of the Yellow River Drag Strip tragedy Sunday that claimed 11 lives and injured numerous other spectators. Moments before Houston Platt gunned the engine of his high-powered funny car for his race with another vehicle, Mike said track officials switched on their public address system for an announcement. Quote, they told people along the fence to stand back, Mike called. Quote, it was too dangerous down there. Quote, some people listened and moved back, some people didn't. Mike was one of several thousand spectators who turned out in the pleasant weather for the races at the track near Covington, about 30 miles southeast of Atlanta. He said he was one of the, quote, lucky ones. He was standing near the starting line, almost a quarter of a mile from the spot where Platt's dragster smashed into the fence. The race began normally, the youth said, and he could see the cars rearing up down near the 180-mile-an-hour top speed as they neared the finish line. Wade was standing on a small hill watching Platt's unlimited-class racer when the fiberglass car began to slide sideways toward the crowd-control fence. Platt deployed his drag parachute in a desperate attempt to slow the car down and pull it back in line, but instead it whipped hard to the right and ran over a small ditch. Quote, it sailed up in the air, Mike said, and clipped the track electrical lines, then it smashed into the fence sideways. The DeKalb teenager said that, quote, seemed to be hooked to the fence, just sliding down and hitting people. End quote. He saw bodies tossed into the air like, quote, bowling pins. It was mostly the people standing directly against the fence who were hit. The waist-high chain-link fence was designed to hold back crowds, not serve as a crash railing. The car tore down more than recalled, and it was too dangerous all along that distance, said Mike. After the wreck, the crowds closed in, Wade said. Many acted like a bunch of crazy fools, packing around the line of victims and slowing rescue work. State patrolmen arrived and cleared paths for a dozen ambulances that were to come and go for more than an hour, picking up the dead and injured. Mike said he saw a small child, about three years old, standing with his parents in a pickup truck that had been backed up to the fence before the race. The race car crashed into it, he said, and the child was decapitated apparently from a sheet of plexiglass that tore loose from the dragster's windshield. One man was apparently caught under the wheels of the racer and dragged almost the entire length of the wrecked portion of the fence. His body was finally torn loose from the speeding car and his blood-soaked trousers were found hanging on the undercarriage of the wrecked drag racer. Quote, it seemed like the whole track was covered with blood, Mike said. End quote. After all these years, the accepted order of events is as follows. Platt's car left the starting line on the dirty, dusty, sandy drag strip and got loose. He straightened it out and powered down again toward the 1,000-foot finish line. Before he got there, the car got loose again, and he threw the parachutes out. As all of this was happening, a fan had basically made his way onto the racing surface and was swept up by one of the two parachutes, killing him instantly. 
This also caused the car to make a violent and unexpected right-hand turn straight up an embankment into the teeming masses of fans. The dead ranged from grown men to young women and boys, even a four-year-old. There was no real police presence at the track or any organized medical response. When the sheriff arrived, he saw pickup trucks speeding off loaded with injured people in the beds. Victims had passed due to a variety of reasons from blunt force trauma to trampling. It was unequivocally the bleakest scene ever witnessed at a drag strip. The reporting from the event is apocalyptic. The discussions of those killed instantly and others grievously wounded are too horrible to share, but understand that this was national news. Every large paper in the country carried the stories. The Atlanta papers were front and center, and as we have seen, there was even first-hand video made by spectators. As the fans were trying to save lives and rescue victims, Houston Platt was said to be physically unharmed. In shock and stunned beyond words, he was facing a scene so grim it couldn't have felt real to him. Suge Campbell announced immediately in the aftermath of this disaster that there would never be another race at Yellow River Drag Strip. USAC, the SCCA, and NASCAR all came out with immediate statements regarding racetrack safety. Atlanta Constitution, 3 March 1969. Headline, Three Big Racing Groups Asked Tighter Controls by Pat Zier. Spokesmen for the three major racing organizations in the United States recommended Sunday night the elimination of unsanctioned tracks and drag strips and the stricter enforcement of safety procedures as a means of preventing another tragedy such as occurred at the Yellow River Drag Strip near Covington Sunday afternoon. In addition, all three said it was highly unlikely that anything as disastrous as the Yellow River tragedy could occur on tracks approved by their groups. The three were Jim Kaser, Director of Professional Competition for the Sports Car Club of America, Bill France Sr., President of NASCAR, and Henry Banks, Director of Competition for the United States Auto Club, known as USAC. The crash at Yellow River in which 11 persons were killed ranks as the worst in the history of American racing as far as can be determined. Dave Tallickson of Atlanta, a member of the Competition Committee of the SCCA and official spokesman for Kaser, said that Kaser commented he, quote, could not visualize anything like that Yellow River incident happening in our sport. Quote, it further emphasizes the operations outside of the framework of organized racing are dangerous and should be stopped, end quote. The Yellow River drag strip was not sanctioned by either the National Hot Rod Association or the American Hot Rod Association, the sport's two major governing bodies. The NHRA was contacted but wasn't available for immediate contact. There was an interesting plot twist with this story, though. AHRA executive Rick Lynch was on the property that day, described as, quote, coincidentally by the New York Times. I think there was more to it, but he made statements to the news disavowing outlaw, unsanctioned tracks and their lack of safety. This track also lacks something very important, insurance. Within days of the tragedy, the news reporting began to expand, specifically in the southeast. There were stories of the physical track investigation by politicians and officials who were trying to understand what happened, some publicly calling the facility a death trap. Atlanta Journal, 3-4-1969. Headline, Track is Death Trap, Newton Salon says. Subtitle, Drag Racer Tells His Fears for Safety of Self, Spectators, by Phil Garner. Covington, Georgia. A professional drag racer has told legislators that he fears for his safety and that of spectators each time he rams a souped-up car down substandard, quote, Mickey Mouse drag strips in the South, but does it anyway, quote, because that's the way I make my living. The manager of Yellow River Drag Strip, where 11 persons standing near the track were killed Sunday by a dragster that went out of control, admitted to legislators that 4,000 tickets were sold to the race, but the seating capacity was only 2,100 in the raceway's bleachers. Members of the House Motor Vehicles Committee heard the explanation and viewed the twisted metal fencing and bloody shredded bits of clothing as they visited the scene Monday. Quote, It's a death trap, pure and simple, said Representative W.D. Ballard of Newton County, shaking his head after walking over the littered half-mile strip of asphalt. The committee will consider legislation to prevent further drag racing disasters and is expected to complete work on a bill within two weeks. Meanwhile, family and friends identified Monday the last of the 11 persons killed at the track. The young woman was identified by Caldwell and Cowan Funeral Home in Covington as Linda Diana Tinsley of Atlanta. Drag race driver Arnie Beswick of Morrison, Illinois, who was standing by to participate in the next race when the car driven by Houston Platt of Atlanta plowed into Spectator Sunday, said he believed a substandard asphalt track lightly sprinkled with sand caused Platt's car to go out of control. Beswick said the Yellow River track is not wide enough and should have at least 60 feet of level, grassy ground on either side to allow drivers to bring their cars under control before reaching spectator areas. Yellow River Drag Strip is not sanctioned by either the American Hot Rod Association or the National Hot Rod Association.
Beswick said that, quote, outlaw drag strips in the South are, quote, notorious among touring professional drivers throughout the nation. Quote, we only race on them during the off-season, said Beswick. We do it because our cars are our employers. We've got to keep them in action. We've got to have the exposure. Beswick owned his dragster, but pointed out that many other drivers race cars owned by motor companies, which require them to gain maximum exposure for their vehicles. Pressed by a legislator for an explanation of black marks left by Platt's vehicle, which the legislator thought might have been created by continuing acceleration to the point of impact, Beswick conceded that the car might have accelerated all the way. Quote, when you're a race driver, you're in there to win, said Beswick. It's a matter of instinct. Quote, you can't do anything else. End quote. One constant in all these stories? Arnie Beswick. He was quoted by many different newspapers as calling Yellow River a Mickey Mouse racetrack and admitted that it scared the daylights out of him, but also admitted that running his car was how he made his living. On the 4th of March, 1969, Wally Parks made a statement on behalf of the NHRA. Columbus Ledger, March 4th, 1969. United Press International headline, Drag racing may be able to profit. The president of the National Hot Rod Association said today that drag racing can profit from Sunday's tragedy at Covington, Georgia. Wally Parks, head of the nation's major sanctioning body for drag racing, quote, permanently injure the image of the sport. Quote, this tragedy may prompt states to require that strips carry adequate insurance, he declared. Quote, insurance companies would then initiate a screening procedure to find out if strips were safe or unsafe. This would seed out unsafe tracks, and there are many of them. End quote. The Covington strip is not an NHRA member, Parks pointed out. Although it applied for membership, it was turned down, he said. Parks said that the sport could, quote, profit from the disaster, which is proper use of the word, but does strike us as cringy in so many ways at this point looking back. His point was that this would lead to changes in laws, the ways that facilities were operated, and the decisions that were made when they were being operated. He also made it plain that the track had applied and been denied for NHRA sanction. Also on the 4th of March, Jim Tice and Larry Carrier were in a story published by the Bristol Herald Courier that was entitled, It Can't Happen at Bristol Track. Bristol Herald Courier, March 4th, 1969. Title, quote, It Can't Happen at Bristol Track. The drag racing accident that resulted in the death of 11 persons Sunday at Covington, Georgia, could never happen at the Bristol International Dragway, according to Carl Moore, vice president of the track. Moore was instrumental in getting the Texas legislature to pass a bill requiring all racing plants in Tennessee to obtain a state license before allowing them to put on a race. Quote, this bill was introduced by me and was designed to prevent just such things as the Covington, Georgia tragedy, said Moore, who did not seek re-election to the legislature this year. Quote, my bill, now a law, requires tracks to pay $100 to the state in order to obtain a license for any auto racing event. In order to get this license, a track must show it is covered by insurance. And in order to get insurance, the track must have stringent safety equipment and standards. Moore said that he believes other states should follow Tennessee's lead in this department. Quote, the type of accident that happened in Georgia could never happen in Tennessee, especially at our Bristol track, said Larry Carrier, president of the local Speedway Complex. Quote, we have a 12-inch thick concrete wall separating the fans from the drag strip on one side and two guardrails 12 feet apart, plus another metal fence on the other side. End quote. They went on to explain the differences between Yellow River and the very modern, cutting-edge Bristol facility. Yes, the same Bristol that had a fence that was aligned with the left-hand side of the racetrack and allowed its fans a walkway that was basically wall height as the cars were running down the drag strip in parallel to them. Just a few days later, in the New Jersey Courier Post, a story was published about Echo Dragway saying many of the same things about safety, modern amenities, and the stuff that Yellow River had none of. New Jersey Courier Post, March 12, 1969, by Otz Hulleberg. Auto racing fans can rest assured that every precaution has been taken at Echo Dragway to assure the safety of not only spectators, but the drivers as well. That's the encouraging news from Lester M. Medivine, general manager at the Camden County plant, where drag racing has been held for many years with a minimum of casualties. Medvine asked the Courier Post to make known the safety factors at ATCO in the wake of a disastrous accident at an unsanctioned track in Covington, Georgia, where a drag race car went off the track and into the stands, killing 11 spectators and injuring many more. Quote, the history of our track, Medvine said, shows that after more than 400 events, there have been only two minor spectator injuries and one driver fatality. We feel this record has been achieved because of adhering to the rules of our sanctioning body, the NHRA, and the state of New Jersey, 
plus an ever-diligent regard for safety on the part of our staff. Medvine said the calamity that took place in Georgia two weeks ago would not have happened if the same regulations which govern the sport in New Jersey had been in effect there. Quote, as you know, he said, this is not the first time spectators have been needlessly injured because of negligence and unconcern on the part of a certain promoter. But this type of incident should not be taken as commonplace or an indicator of the type of sport with which we're associated. End quote. Atco Raceway has been in operation for nine seasons and now is recognized as one of the finest racetracks of its type in the country. The track will offer its annual preview of the upcoming season Sunday, where some 85 classes of championship drag racing will unfold. In addition to Atco, four other dragways in the greater Philadelphia area are sanctioned by the NHRA. They include Cecil County Dragway, Allentown-Vargo Dragway, Maple Grove Park in Reading, Pennsylvania, and Madison Township Raceway Park in Englishtown. Quote, each of these tracks had been in operation for more than five years, says Medvine. Quote, they are operated by sincere businessmen who are conscious of their obligation to the public. End quote. By March 8th, the Georgia legislature had already moved a law forward that demanded tracks obtain a license to operate. The Macon Telegraph, March 8th, 1969. Headline, Senate OK's Racetrack Safety Bill by United Press International, Atlanta, Georgia. The Senate Friday approved a bill aimed at preventing racing accidents such as the Yellow River drag strip wreck that killed 12 last Sunday and formally asked Congress to lift its scheduled freeze on welfare Monday. With the tragic racing accident fresh in their minds, senators voted 40 to 1 to require racetrack owners to be licensed with the state comptroller general. In order to get a license, an owner would have to pay a $100 annual fee and show proof of a minimum bond or insurance of $1 million per accident or $100,000 per victim. Senate Administration floor leaders Frank Coggin and Mike Paget explained that in order to get and keep insurance, racing firms would have to meet strict safety requirements. That license was contingent on the place proving they had a $1 million insurance policy as well as a $100,000 coverage policy per person. By 326, this was awaiting a signature, and by 327, it became the law of Georgia. Atlanta Journal, March 26, 1969. Headline. Drag strip bill waits for signing. A bill that would require auto racing operators to carry a million dollars in liability insurance has passed the Georgia Senate. The bill grew out of a recent tragedy at Yellow River Drag Strip near Covington, where a car went through a fence and killed 12 spectators. The Senate substituted a House version of the racing bill and passed it Tuesday 37 to 1. There were several minor changes in the House substitute in the original Senate bill. The substitute will require the Director of Public Safety, not the Comptroller General, to handle the licensing of drag and oval racing tracks. The original bill included go-kart tracks. These were exempted with the version of the bill passed Tuesday. The original bill also called for violators of the licensing requirements to be punished for a misdemeanor. The new version will make it a felony. Quote, you can't make a track or a highway, for that matter, completely safe, Senator Mike Paget of McBean, part owner of a racetrack, said, quote, but we want to protect the people from getting killed, end quote. He also said he felt the stringent insurance requirement will result in tracks that are safer for spectators. If owners do not meet these requirements, they will not be licensed. The director of public safety would now have oversight over the licensing of racetracks and enforcing the statute to make sure they had proper insurance and operating and safety procedures. Problem solved, right? Stay tuned. As this was happening, the first lawsuit was filed on 320, reported on 321 by the Atlanta Journal. Atlanta Journal, March 21, 1969. Headline, $350,000 asked in drag strip death. A North Carolina woman has moved into federal court here with a $350,000 damage suit for the death of her husband at a drag strip near Covington this month. Twelve persons died in the mishap when a car driven by Houston Platt left the Yellow River drag strip and plowed into a group of spectators. The accident has been called the worst in drag racing history. The suit was brought by Mrs. Edgar Loftus, who claimed her husband was crushed under the vehicle driven by Platt. Defendants in the suit are Yellow River drag strip, the Gold Agency, Platt, General Motors Corporation, and S.R. Campbell, the owner of the drag strip. Mrs. Loftus said that on March 2nd, her husband, 65 years of age, purchased a ticket to the race and stationed himself behind the fence provided by Campbell. She claimed Platt was driving the vehicle about 200 miles per hour and the car went out of control, up in the air, and landed on Loftus. Mrs. Loftus said that the gold agency furnished Platt and the other drivers a percentage of the gate to the race. She contended Platt's vehicle was designed improperly and is dangerous, and that General Motors, Platt, the gold agency, and Yellow River knew the car was dangerous. The drag track was dangerous, and all the defendants knew it was unsafe for spectators, Mrs. Loftus contends. She is asking for $250,000 in general damages and $100,000 in punitive damages.
The suit named a wide range of parties for the simple fact that the track had no insurance. To get any compensation, a wide net would need to be cast. On June 10th in the Macon Telegraph, the Associated Press story was picked up, and this was a story that had Houston Platt asserting that he was blameless in the wreck and that he should not be held in account through the court proceedings and lawsuits that were being filed left, right, and center. Macon Telegraph, June 10th, 1969. Headline, Platt says he's blameless. Drag racer Houston Platt of Atlanta said Monday he is blameless in a March 2nd accident which killed 12 persons at a drag strip near Covington. Platt made his statement in answer to a $350,000 damage suit filed in federal court here by a North Carolina woman. The mishap at Yellow River Drag Strip has been called the worst drag racing tragedy in history. The woman, Mrs. Edgar Loftus, claims her husband was crushed by the car driven by Platt and that Platt and other defendants were negligent. Named in the suit besides Platt are the Yellow River Drag Strip, the Gold Agency, General Motors, and S.R. Campbell, the owner of the drag strip. The suit claims that the car and tracks were dangerous and the defendants all knew it. Platt denied the allegations, and in a separate answer, General Motors said it was in no way negligent in the accident and that it did not help Platt equip the car. Yellow River Drag Strip, which has already filed an answer in which Campbell and the corporation denied any negligence. Meanwhile, the state's licensing procedure is running into the kinds of hiccups every government program seems to run into. The massive demanded insurance policy was a burden that many tracks thought would kill them and simply having to pay for. Adding on to that, the increased state scrutiny by officials visiting facilities and demanding upgrades and safety changes, which I'm sure were needed but likely unafforded by the operators, the policy was incredibly expensive and there was not an agent in the state able to write it. This forced the tracks to go outside of the state and for some to straight up forge notes to make it look like they had done the work. Dozens of tracks were either lying about their insurance or simply got it from someone unlicensed in Georgia. Atlanta Constitution, August 16, 1969. Headline. 28 insure raceways illegally. An investigation of records shows that policies covering 28 to 34 Georgia racetracks were issued in violation of the state's insurance code, Comptroller General James L. Bentley said Friday. Earlier, it was thought that only three or four illegal policies had been written, but Bentley said available records of the Department of Public Safety showed 28 policies sold by out-of-state brokerage firms and written through insurance companies not licensed in Georgia. A major problem in dealing with non-licensed companies, Bentley said, is that if the company refuses to pay a claim, you can't revoke their license because they don't have a license. There is no protection to the policyholder. Another problem is that the out-of-state firms are not requiring the tracks to improve safety standards before writing the million-dollar liability policies. Instead, they're simply charging a relatively high rate. When the 1969 General Assembly passed a law requiring racetracks to carry liability insurance, it was done to prevent a recurrence of the tragedy at Yellow River Drag Strip in which 11 spectators were killed when a car swerved off the track. The reasoning behind the bill was that insurance companies would require tracks to put in guardrails and other protection for drivers, officials, and spectators before issuing policies. Bentley argues that the law, quote, is considerably weak and does not accomplish the goal of making racetracks in this state safer for spectators. This was rapidly turning into a mess, and incredibly, one of the violators turned out to be Atlanta International Raceway, the massive speedway that held NASCAR races. By July, the state had begun threatening operators with fines and jail time if they didn't get their insurance handled. Atlanta Journal, July 15, 1969. Headline, War Declared on Unsafe Racetracks. Written by Ron Hudspeth. Time is running out on Georgia's unsanctioned speedways and drag strips. Lieutenant Colonel Lewis G. Bell has declared war. Quote, we've had it with them, said Bell on Monday, Deputy Director of the State Department of Safety. Bell is determined that there be no more horror like there was on the Sunday afternoon of March 2nd when a dragster screamed out of control at Yellow River Drag Strip near Covington and plowed into the crowd, killing 13 spectators and injuring 50. It's been three months since the Georgia legislature hurriedly passed a bill requiring track owners to carry a minimum of a million dollars liability insurance, but there has been little compliance. Bell says 30 of Georgia's estimated 55 tracks remain unlicensed. He has ordered post commanders throughout the state to personally visit tracks and advise the owners that it is a felony, punishable by as many as 20 years in prison and a $1,000 fine to operate without a license. Quote, actually, we don't really tell them that, said Bell, whose patience seems to have worn somewhat thin. Quote, but I'd rather operate that way. End quote. If the tracks are operating without a license and do not comply, Hall said that we will bring a case against them. He said that the Georgia State Patrol would likely make arrests, but that the padlocking of the track will be left to local law enforcement officers. Bell is aware that some tracks may be operating even though they have been turned down by insurance companies because of inadequate safety standards. Quote, these are exactly the ones we're after, end quote, said Bell. Quote, actually, that's the intent of the law, 
to force these unsafe operations out of business, and there's no doubt that some are still operating. End quote. Seventeen tracks have been insured with a million-dollar policy and have been licensed to operate through December 31st for a $100 fee by the state. The 17 include Augusta Raceways, Savannah Speedway, Southeastern International Dragway, Swainsboro Speedway, Rome International Speedway, Toka Speedway, Lakewood Speedway, Jeffco Dragway, 441 Speedway, Sonoya Raceway, Dixie Trioval Speedway at Ackworth, Forsyth Company Speedway, Hartwell Speedway, Troop County Speedway, Boyd Speedway, and Hale County Speedway. Being processed at the moment by Hall's Office are Banks County Speedway, Canton International Speedway, US-19 Dragway, and Savannah Speedway Dragstrip. Most noticeable among the missing is Atlanta International Raceway, which has the Dixie 500 slated for Saturday, August 3rd, but Bell says AIR has yet to ask for application papers. Jack Donahue, the vice president of K&K Insurance Company of Fort Wayne, Indiana, says his company insures 14 tracks in Georgia, but on a recent visit to the state, quote, I had to cancel the policies of three tracks and turn down the applications of eight more because they simply didn't have the adequate safety standards, end quote. Donahue says for spectator safety, his company requires a three-foot guardrail and 10-foot front wheel fence at oval tracks and a two-foot guardrail and eight-foot wheel fence for drag strips, quote, but you'll find few drag strips anywhere who conform to those standards, says Donahue, who says his company does not insure any drag strips in Georgia. Other tracks went to the local paper to brag about being in compliance and capable of meeting the regulations, but many others were bemoaning the burden and it's understandable financially. If you ran a nice track that was safe, that was clean and well-operated, why should one guy's mess cause you to interrupt your business? It's an understandable place of anger to be put in when the Yellow River disaster suddenly became everybody's disaster. Through 1970, the lawsuits continued to roll in. Starting with the initial $350,000 suit in 1969, the total was now over $1.3 million in associated lawsuits. Atlanta Constitution, March 4, 1970. $1.3 million sought and dragged deaths. Three suits for $450,000 in damages each have been filed in Fulton Superior Court by survivors of three of the 11 persons killed in March 1969 at Yellow River Drag Strip in Covington. Plaintiffs are Miss Faye Watkins Head, Mrs. Ralph Bonner, and Mrs. James Grady Price. The Yellow River Drag Strip, S.R. Campbell, operator of the strip, Houston Platt, driver of the racing machine that went out of control, the Coca-Cola Company, and Gold Agency were all named as defendants. The 11 persons were killed, nearly 50 more injured, when a car traveling an estimated 150 miles an hour hurtled into a crowd of spectators. The suits asked damages for the, quote, wrongful deaths of Jeff Watkins, 26 of Decatur, James Richard Bonner, 4, of Greensboro, North Carolina, and Weldon Winslow Price, 18, of Union Point. But there was really no money to be had. Platt was not a man of means, Campbell was long gone and hard to find, and there was nothing financially hidden anywhere. Another note on the legal front is that the Gold Agency was acquitted of one of the suits that had been brought against them for being the booking agent for Houston Platt to even be at that event. November 5, 1969, Atlanta Journal. Headline, Defendant Cleared in Racing Tragedy by William B. Williams. One of the five defendants in a $350,000 federal court lawsuit stemming from a drag strip accident near Covington, which claimed 12 lives last March, has been dismissed from liability. U.S. District Judge Sidney O. Smith Jr. granted the motion for dismissal Tuesday to the Gold Agency of Illinois, a booking agency. He held up the agency's contention that by negotiating an agreement between Yellow River Drag Strip and race driver Houston Platt, it was not doing business in Georgia. The judge ruled that although Gold Agency wrote Platt and the drag strip letters of agreement, it was not doing business in Georgia under state law. The mishap March 2nd at Yellow River Drag Strip has been called the worst drag racing tragedy in history. The plaintiff, Mrs. Edgar Loftus of North Carolina, claims her husband was crushed under the car driven by Platt and that Platt and other defendants were negligent. Named in the suit were Platt, the drag strip, Gold Agency, General Motors, and S.R. Campbell, owner of the drag strip, all claim there was no negligence involved. According to the complaint, the funny car drag racer was being driven by Platt at 200 miles an hour when it went out of control, left the ground, and plowed into a crowd of spectators. Platt has filed an answer in the suit claiming he was blameless in the accident. He denied he was driving at 200 miles per hour. Also in 1970, the track operators seemed to get together and battle back against the state of Georgia and get some help to live up to the regulations they needed to legally operate. This story, entitled $1 million in insurance reportedly killing tracks, is the proof. Atlanta Constitution, January 22, 1970. Headline, $1 million in insurance reportedly killing racetracks. 
by Bob Hurt. Almost all of Georgia's 57 drag strips and auto racing tracks will be closed this year because of new legislation requirements, a group of track owners told members of the state Senate Wednesday. The owners appealed for a $100,000 cut in the $1 million mandatory track insurance policy ordered by the legislature last year in the wake of Yellow River Drag Strip, in which 11 persons were killed. Senator Mike Padgett of McBean, Senate author of last year's bill, would later say he would be very much inclined to sponsor an amendment to lower the insurance rate, but wanted to be more informed first. Padgett and Senator Hugh Carter of Plains met with a half-dozen track and strip operators after the owners complained that they were being put out of business by the insurance regulations. Bill Hibbert of Dawson, owner of the Thunder Lake Speedway, said that public safety commission officers are requiring the tracks get a million-dollar insurance policy that is in effect 365 days per year, but there is no insurance company in the nation that would write such a policy. All racing insurance is issued on a race-by-race basis, according to Hubbard. And owners have to go outside Georgia to find a company that will write a million-dollar policy even on that basis. The owners said the state's half-dozen largest tracks, including the giant Atlanta International Speedway, get their insurance from national racing associations so they will not be affected. Padgett said last year's law doesn't require the year-long insurance and that he would speak to state officers about their interpretation of the million-dollar requirement. Hibbard said that the racing season opens March 1st, but so far track owners haven't been able to get Hibbard and Bill Connell, an Albany drag strip owner, appealed to Padgett and Carter to seek legislation dropping the insurance requirement to $100,000 per claim and $300,000 liability instead of $1 million. The only real problem is that the standards are a little too high, Hibbard said. We want the insurance and our hats are off to you for requiring it. Public safety was at stake. Paget, who operated Albany Racetrack until recently, dropped it last year because of high cost. By 1971, the regulations were all but forgotten. The state didn't have the manpower to inspect the tracks anymore, or they lacked the wherewithal to do it, and things are seemingly right back to where they started before March 2, 1969. Atlanta Journal, February 2, 1971. Title, Racetrack Safety Regulations Gathering Dust, Only Three Tracks Comply, by Ron Hudspeth. It's been nearly two years since a powerful funny car roared down out of control at Yellow River Drag Strip near Covington, Georgia, cutting a path of death through a Sunday afternoon crowd. Twelve died and 50 were injured in the tragedy. Could it happen again? Apparently so, unless attitudes change. Despite a $1 million insurance stipulation and a 16-page document regulating racetrack safety in the state, barnyard-type tracks seemingly will open their gates once more this spring. Quote, I know one drag strip that'll be operating again this year where their spectators actually sit on the guardrail and watch the racing, says one veteran racing observer. How can it be such a situation that exists in a state once suffering the horror of Yellow River? Apathy, mostly. Racetrack safety appears to be popular only immediately after such tragedies or when politically desirable. The latest bit of regulation, the state fire marshal's lengthy document governing spectator control, guardrail and grandstand construction and fire prevention, is mostly gathering dust. During an eight-month period, only three of Georgia's 42 tracks have received a certificate of occupancy under the new regulations. With the 1971 auto racing season less than two months away, one wonders if the overtaxed staff of Lloyd Gardner, director of inspection of the state fire marshal's office, will be able to inspect the remaining 38 or 39 tracks. As it stands now, all a track needs to do to open its gates is to show proof to the Department of Public Safety it has a $1 million insurance policy and pay a $100 yearly fee. If it is in violation of the regulations established by the fire marshal's office, a misdemeanor can only be proved after the track has been inspected, taken to court, and a lengthy process at best is executed. Garter admits the problem is, quote, we just don't have the time and number of people to canvas the racetracks like we should, end quote. Garter did say that he'll be making an effort to inspect those first who sources say are the worst offenders. Quote, we want to smoke those out quickly, said Gardner. Ironically, the track promoters and owners who helped Garter drop the regulations consisted of mostly in the racing business to be excellent guidelines, but have showed little enthusiasm to put their own tracks under the security of inspection. Thus far, only Atlanta International Raceway, Middle Georgia Raceway in Macon, and Southeastern Dragway in Dallas carry certification of occupancy. Road Atlanta is expected to secure its certificate soon. The $1 million insurance provision passed hurriedly by a shocked legislature immediately after Yellow River has proved of little help in upgrading Georgia's racetracks. Jimmy Bentley, who initiated the track regulations idea while Attorney General once said, the million-dollar insurance policy provision simply, quote, pays for a good funeral, end quote. Outside of a yearly, five-year, 10-year, then 25-year remembrance of the disaster, the story of Yellow River largely ends there, but the story of Houston Platt does not. 
Platt continued drag racing. After taking a month or so off in 1969, he got back into a Dodge Dart to run the rest of the season with and then commissioned the construction of a new Camaro that would be his final Dixie Twister. Platt raced that car all the way through 1971 before retiring from the sport and not simply retiring, but blocking it completely out of his life. Platt didn't look at photos. He didn't talk about the sport. He didn't attend races or even let on he knew what drag racing was for decades. Every conversation that began with drag racing went back to Yellow River, every bad memory unearthed each day, and it was just too much for him to bear. Like he was once quoted as saying, quote, I have feelings like everyone else, end quote. He raised a family, became a successful manager and leader in the construction industry, and until someone called after locating his final Camaro, he had no interest in drag racing whatsoever. That call did spark some interest, though. He was able to reunite with the car he had raced to finish his career, reunite with a sport that had loved him a very long time and inspired his own sons to go racing as well. A member of the Georgia Racing Hall of Fame, among others, he has earned his place in the annals of not only Georgia history, but drag racing history. The story of Yellow River Drag Strip is often told in the context of a single day, but it was a decade and then a lifetime in the making. The most tragic day in drag racing history taught the sport many hard lessons, and there were lessons that likely should have been learned in other ways long before this happened. If you're a racing fan, always remember when you're at the track, no matter how big or how small, sanctioned or not, danger is never very far from you. Respect yourself, the racers, and the environment that you're in. And for the record, there is nothing more awesome than a small country drag strip. I've enjoyed many, many days visiting places that most people will never know exist, and there are shades of Yellow River in all of them. The seemingly fast and loose rules, the proximity of the competition, a rustic setting, all the things in an environment that I truly love about the gritty nature of the base sport of drag racing. If you love that environment like I do, or you aspire to visit one of those small country strips, keep your head up and keep your distance. The tragedy of 55 years ago should have taught us all something. Thank you for watching. Please like and subscribe for more automotive and historical content. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO, that's J-E-R-K-O, for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com, they care about the jerky you eat. Use JERKO for 10% off. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by BeefJerkyUnlimited.com. Made in Michigan with nationwide shipping available, Beef Jerky Unlimited cares about the jerky you eat. Small batch production means the highest quality jerky on the market and a wide variety of flavors and options to fit the full spectrum of flavor profiles you're looking for. Beef, pork, and chicken jerky are available, as well as low-carb options and more. Made with real smoke, real salt, and without adding nitrates, MSG, or preservatives. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com should be your next stop for a tasty, healthy snack. Whether it's sweet, hot, or smoky, BeefJerkyUnlimited.com has something to fit your taste. Use promotional code JERKO, that's J-E-R-K-O, for a 10% discount on your next purchase. BeefJerkyUnlimited.com, they care about the jerky you eat. Use JERKO for 10% off.